Hey there. Uh, happy Halloween. Jack and Matthew and I have a thing we do for this holiday sometimes. Not quite a tradition, but maybe now. Called a kaidan. Years ago, we learned about an old party game they used to play in Japan, where the people gathered at a party would try to tell a hundred ghost stories, with the idea that if you make it that far, the ghost ears will itch enough that one of them will show up. When we heard about it, it was a no-brainer that we would try to do it. So we sent around invitations, lots of folks prepared stories, and on Halloween night, we all gathered outside of an abandoned house in Mississippi around a campfire and a gumbo pot and told stories all night long. I fell asleep well before we hit the 100 mark, if we hit the 100 mark at all. So I can't tell you if it actually worked, but it left enough of an impression that we've done variations on the theme over the years. And this year, we want to share it with y'all. We put out a call for people to share stories, personal experiences, fiction, whatever. And we got so many good results that we are in fact going to share it in the form of two episodes, both of which are available now. We so appreciate everybody sharing your stories. We listened to all of them. We had a great time doing it. Today, we're going to be sharing a miniature 14-story kaidan. 86 short of the original mark. Who knows, maybe we'll do more of this in the future. If you want to make up the deficit with your people, there's one idea for how to spend your Halloween. For now, uh, host goes first. So, here's mine. I used to work in the ghost story industry for years. I gave tours at a haunted house and in the French Quarter in New Orleans. And when you do that kind of work, people always want to ask you, what have you seen? And I only ever had one story that I could tell about a personal experience that made me go, huh? A little after college, I was performing at a theater in the French Quarter. And my one prop in the show was a bullet that I had to magically produce from behind somebody's ear. And it was a really simple magic trick, just hiding it in my palm and then getting it to my fingers. But I'd never done stage magic before, so I practiced the trick obsessively. And one night during the show, I was backstage in the dressing room waiting for my cue, appearing and disappearing the bullet over and over and over again, pretty much on autopilot until I looked down and I saw that the bullet was gone. I cursed, and one of the other actors heard me and asked what was wrong, and so I explained the situation. To which he said, obviously, it's the ghost. As he told it, a long time ago, there had been an actress in this theater who was having an affair with her director. And when things went sour between them, not only did the affair come to an end, but the director also fired her from the show. Later, she came to the opening night, watched her replacement, and as the show was coming to an end, snuck backstage and during the curtain call, hanged herself in view of the audience. And to this day, the actor told me, whenever a show is happening at the theater, she picks someone as her victim. And it might start with a disappearing prop, but little by little, the problems would escalate to the point where, he told me, another young actress in the past who she had targeted ended up falling to her death over one of the balconies outside the theater. Fortunately for me, he explained, she too had become a ghost 
who could be invoked against the first ghost. So if I wanted to call on her to save myself, I had to do a ritual. I had to go outside onto one of those balconies, turn around three times, and say an incantation that he taught me. I was brand new at this theater, and this guy had been around a long time, so I figured this is just what actor hazing looks like, and I decided to go along with it. I went outside onto the balcony, turned around three times, and just to show that I was in on the joke, I kind of sang the incantation and did this huge melodramatic flourish with my hand, and the bullet came falling out of my sleeve. All right, passing the baton. Our next storyteller is a listener who goes by Basil H. My boss said everything was fine, so I don't know why I feel so anxious. The sourdough looked totally normal when I pulled it out of the fridge. I haven't touched it, though. I feel weird about it. Maybe I just feel uneasy from all the little changes that I've noticed here. I haven't seen a customer in months, but my boss still manages to keep business afloat. And the walls... uh, the walls. I think there's something wrong with the paint. I brushed up against the wall next to the register yesterday, and it felt... soft. Velvety. Like the shell of an ear. My fingers left indents where I touched it. Maybe it's water damage. I'd tell my boss, but she's never here. I don't remember the last time I saw her in the flesh. I keep making bread, though, and it keeps going somewhere. I don't know where it goes. I still get paid for it. My stomach rolls when I think about sinking my hands into that dough. But... Hmm... It does look so smooth, like it would hold the imprints of my fingers just as nicely as clay would. So, I peel one of the pieces off the tray I prepared yesterday, and it's cold and firm and moist, just like always. I start to shape it into a loaf. It's amazing how much raw sourdough feels like skin. It's tacky and soft like the tender underside of a forearm, and there's that little give of flesh over a gentle layer of subcutaneous fat. As I shape the loaves, one by one, I feel them soften with the heat of my hands. I feel them swell and stir as they grow warm in the ambient heat that leaks from the ovens. Bread is alive after all. I tend to get lost in my imagination while I work. I don't even remember why I was anxious. I let the loaves proof for a little while and then I put them in the oven to bake. They smell delicious and come out crackling with yellow fat. The air smells like perfectly cooked pork. So this is a story that I actually kind of grew up listening to when I was a kid. Um, It's actually my mom's story, and it's about her going to a haunted house in 
Pennsylvania, right outside of Pittsburgh. She was desperately in love. She was probably about 14 years old. She was desperately in love with this guy named Bobby Whitesides. She used to sit by the window and listen for his whistle when he walked by. And Bobby Whitesides was best friends with her cousin, Dick. And one day, Bobby Whitesides, who had a car, came to Dick and said, hey, there's a haunted house out in the countryside if y'all would like if you'd like to come and check it out and of course my mom kind of wheedles her way into the car ride and I mean it's straight out of a movie it's a moonlit night middle of Pennsylvania it's summertime so there's crickets chirping and they get to the top of this hill and down in the middle of this tiny valley is a two-story farmhouse with no windows and they walk down the hill and they have to go around this hole in the walkway leading up to the house that probably used to contain the house's septic tank, but had since been emptied and was totally overgrown with weeds and grass and stuff like that. They have to climb up on the porch because there's no uh, steps and they begin exploring and they're looking around and of course they're all terrified out of their minds. But they're putting on brave faces and they go down to the basement and they find some old Christmas cards. And then they look around the first floor and it's a lot of blanket draped furniture and cobwebs. I mean, it is straight up Vincent Price. And then they decide they're going to go check out the second floor. And there was a staircase on to the right when you walked in the front door um, leading to the second. And there was this landing and there was a big piece of linoleum that had been placed across the first four or five steps, so they kind of had to jump that, and there was no banister, and they climbed to the top, and there are three doors. There's a door to the right when you get to the top of the stairs, there's a door right in front of the stairway, and there's a long, dark hallway, and there's a door at the end of the long, dark hallway. And so Dick takes the door to the right, Whitesides takes the door immediately in front of the stairs, and my 14-year-old mom She's taken the one at the end of the long, dark hallway. And they've got flashlights, and by the time my mom reaches her door, Dick and Bobby Whitesides are both sort of calling out and reporting, oh, it's the bathroom, oh, this is the bedroom. Um, and my mom has her flashlight, and there wasn't a doorknob, but there was the mount for the doorknob. And she's shown the light, and she reached to turn the doorknob mount, and it turned itself and she screamed. And that scream lit a fire under Bobby Whiteside and Dick because they were already down the steps by the time she came running after him and they jumped across the linoleum and she jumped across the linoleum and they jumped off the front porch and she jumped off the front porch and they ran around the hole where the septic tank was and my mom forgot that that hole was there and she fell in and it was too deep for her to get out and she stood in that hole screaming bloody murder looking up at that black sky wondering who was going to pop their head over that hole first and luckily it was Bobby Whiteside he and Dick had come back and they picked her up by her arms and they carried her all the way up to the top of the hill and of course Bobby Whitesides and Dick they didn't they didn't know what was going on. They thought my mom, they didn't know if it was a joke or whatever, but they were all just panicked. And they started asking my mom, like, what's going on? What's going on? And my mom says, the doorknob turned itself. There's somebody in the house. The doorknob turned itself, somebody in the house. 
And Bobby's trying to calm my mom down. And my mom's still screaming. And Dick goes, shut up and look. Get down. Be quiet. And they, had, they were at the top of the hill where they first saw the house. And now they all look back and bathed in the moonlight, that abandoned farmhouse, and they watched as a white shape walked around the outside three times, and then they didn't see it anymore. That was friend of the show, John Angelo Cassaro. You may remember him as the voice of Dr. Crandon in Marjorie and Houdini. Have you ever walked into a room and found a vampire? No, not the sexy kind, but a foul creature with bony limbs and ashen skin, the kind that snarls as you enter like a beast about to pounce, the kind that roots you to the spot with its sunken hypnotic eyes, rendering you unable to flee as you watch the hideous thing uncoil from the shadows. Has your heart started racing, though your legs refuse to? Have you felt time slow as the creature crosses the room in the darkness of a blink? Have you shuddered with fear when it places one clawed hand atop your head and another under your chin so it can tilt you, exposing your neck? Have you squirmed as its rough, dry tongue slides down your cheek, over your jaw, to your throat, in a slithering search that's seeking your artery? Have you felt its hot breath release in a hiss against your skin when it probes your pulse, the flow that leads to your brain? Has its tongue rested there, throbbing slightly, as if savoring the moment? Have you then experienced a sinking, sucking blackness as you discover that not all vampires feed on blood? Some feed on memories. Well, have you? Maybe not. Let me rephrase the question. Have you ever walked into a room and suddenly forgotten <laughs> why you came in? <laughs> that story came from Eric Miller. The next one comes from Milford Cubicle PDX. I grew up in a small fisherman's town directly in front of a graveyard. This sounds a lot creepier than it was. This was like a really pretty graveyard, truly a gated community of cemeteries. All of this to say that I was never afraid of my backyard. Well, one night when I was 15, I had this odd dream. It was really dark. I think it was night and there was a storm. I remember this vivid sensation of icy water, a bobbing up and down like a castaway clinging to a driftwood. I woke up to too much sunlight. My window could never let that much light in my room. I felt too stiff to have slept in my bed. Shaking away the disorientation, I figured out that I was not in my room. I was in the graveyard. Again, not a scary graveyard. I used to cut through it to see my bestie across the block. 
This was the first and last time I had ever slept walk. I was sure I must have been on autopilot, taking the same path I'd trekked over a thousand times, even if I was not on the usual direct path. Plus, I wasn't in the act of walking. I was laying in the fetal position, my face on top of a flat tombstone. I rushed home, feeling off, but mostly tired. I got inside and washed my face. Then I looked in the mirror and saw an inverted 51 on my cheek, which did kind of freak me out. Nothing came from it, so I moved on. But earlier this year, a story of my niece and her imaginary friend came up. I mentioned that kids with imaginary friends gave me the heebie-jeebies, so my mom told me to chill out. She said I had one too growing up. She said we had fun outside, but it was so cute when I'd get mad at my friend inside because he got everything wet. My blood ran cold, and I remembered him, even though I don't remember actually seeing him. His name was Simon, and suddenly that 51 didn't look so much like a number in my memory. So when I was about six years old, I lived in a little apartment with just me and my mom. Classic tale, deadbeat, runaway dad, mom busting her ass, trying to make sure we make ends meet and all that goody. I guess on several occasions, she'd walk past my bedroom and would see me on the top bunk of my uh, bunk bed that I definitely needed as a, as a single child. And... Um, see me talking to myself as far as she could tell. But uh, it was full-blown conversations as if there's somebody else on the other end uh, just running me through shit. And when she asked me who I was talking to, I'd tell her that it was my papa ghost and that he was teaching me how to play army men or, like, telling me that it's okay that all these other kids aren't, like, wanting to hang out with me and all this other stuff and telling me about his life and his death and all these, like, jobs that he worked while he was still alive and memories that he had. And, of course, at first it just started out simple and she figured it was just kid's imagination, imaginary friend, all that good stuff. But, like I said, he told me some of his jobs, told me he was a policeman, told me that he was in the military, that he died in a car accident. And when my mom called my grandma to confirm all these things... It was all right on the money, and there was, I mean, no way for me to have been told that. You know, he died way before I was ever born. It's not like that's the kind of stuff that you just talk about on the regular. Um, so it's, it's just completely, uh, completely mind-blown. It's really the only thing any of us could think. And I haven't really had any uh, crazy experiences since then. Just Papa Ghost was looking out for me, you know? That was from At Quack Artist. The next and final story for part one was written by Freddie Brock and is read for you by Henry Murfeld Felling. Dirt. Michael didn't realize being dead could hurt. His body was underground and he could feel it as worms ate away at his skin. His dirt filled his throat as his body rotted away into nothing. He could feel all of that, and at the same time he could feel the wind whipping across his face as his fingers sunk into the soft soil and as his back leaned against his own gravestone. 
It was strange to have your body and your spirit be in two very separate places and still be able to feel both of them. Michael sighed, leaning his head back to look at the dark sky as he felt something burrow into his cheek underground. He'd been buried for three weeks. He thought everything would just end. He tried not to spend that much time thinking about death when he was alive, but he'd never believed in any sort of after. But on the rare occasions he considered it, it was never this. It wasn't this horrible state of limbo that was painful, yes, but also so delightfully boring. His spirit, soul, whatever, was tethered to his body, so he couldn't even make it out of the graveyard before being dragged back to his headstone. And for some damn reason, there weren't any other dead people around. Not one glimpse of a ghostly figure in a graveyard. If ghosts were going to be anywhere, it would be here. Michael didn't enjoy being social, but he would have died, pardon the irony, for some company that he could talk to. The only other being he'd lightly interacted with was the cat. The cat, who was currently sitting in arm's reach away, staring at Michael with big gray eyes, was an orange tabby with an unreasonably long tail and sharp teeth. It had hissed at Michael the first few times he'd seen it, but over the long weeks, the cat had decided that Michael's grave was the perfect place to sunbathe, sleep, and bring an on assortment of dead rodents to. Hello, beast. The cat meowed in response, a garish sound, before trotting over and sitting next to Michael, stretching his haunches. Michael sat up with crossed legs, reaching out and putting a hand near the cat. He couldn't pet it. The only thing he could touch was his grave. But he liked to think that the cat could tell he wanted to comfort it. Michael shivered as he felt his eyeball pop underground and something crawled out of it into the dirt. He stared up at the stars. He hadn't appreciated the sky all that much when he was alive. It was nice to take some time and do that now, even if it was under less than desirable circumstances. I wish it just ended, he said aloud. The cat made a noise of agreement before standing and pushing its head against Michael's leg. Its head went straight through and Michael smiled. I can't pet you, beast. Wish I could. The cat huffed, turning on its heel and walking a few feet away before looking back at Michael expectantly. When he didn't move, the cat meowed like it was annoyed, walked another few feet and looked back again. He stood hesitantly and walked slowly towards the cat. The cat dashed ahead a few feet, looked back again to make sure he was following, and waited for Michael. Every time he left the headstone, he would feel a tether in his stomach, dragging him back to his body. As he walked in time with the cat, the tether got more and more intense until every step felt like a burden. But another tether connected him to the cat, and his steps continued forward until finally... They reached the gate of the graveyard. The cat sat next to him as Michael looked at the gate and what lay outside it with Lonnie. I can't go anymore. The cat grumbled and walked through the gate slowly. He sat on the other side and glared viciously at Michael. Michael rolled his eyes and stepped forward, expecting the pull of the tether to stop him like it always did. But he stepped through the gate and suddenly every sensation was gone. The feeling of the wind whipping across his face, of the grass beneath his feet, the feeling of his organs rotting away, and the constant pressure of the dirt on top of him. All that remained was the feeling of the cat's fur under his hand as he petted, and its purr reverberated in his ears as everything stopped, 
and everything ended. <laughs>